Chapter 25 of A History of Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Astronomy by Walter W. Bryant. Chapter 25. The Major Planets. In striking contrast to this collection of solid objects, we come to their next neighbour, Jupiter, with an enormous bulk more than a thousand times as great as that of the Earth, but by no means so solid. It is, in fact, considered now as in a strange intermediate between that of the Sun and that of the inner, more matured planets. Glimpses of an idea of similarity between Jupiter and the Sun, and especially in regard to temperature, are to be seen even in a few 18th century writers. But soon after the middle of the 19th century, the idea was revived by Nasmith, and in 1860 G.P. Bond found the light of Jupiter 14 times as intense photographically as that of the Moon, pointing to the unexpected deduction that it reflected more than 100% of the incident light, and so must be self-luminous to some extent. This deduction, however, he himself rejected, on the ground that his observations were not good enough, but suggested that any light from Jupiter not attributable to reflected sunshine might be auroral in character. Soon afterwards, Zollner, in 1865, rejecting the suggestions of Herschel and others that the bands and cloud movements on Jupiter were analogous to trade winds, which in a rapidly rotating body like Jupiter would have enormous effect, suggested that this analogy was misleading, since at such a distance, the sun's effect in causing trade winds must only be one twenty-seventh of that on the Earth. He deduced that the requisite heat must come from within, and that Jupiter must be still a hot and almost gaseous body without a solid crust. From one observer and another has come confirmation, more or less strong, of this new idea. The solar analogy of the rotation, varying with the latitude and being quickest at the equator, had been known as long ago as the time of Cassini, who even hinted at the similarity of Jupiter markings to sunspots, a similarity more generally recognised since the careful and prolonged observations of Denning and others on the motion and appearance of the spots and belts. The experiment of Bond, often since repeated, renders it only very possible and not by any means certain that Jupiter's surface, or what appears to us as surface, whether of gaseous body or overlying cloud strata, is self-luminous, as it would be if really incandescent. The albedo is determined to be as high as 70%, and since this is near the limit of the whitest surfaces known in nature, and moreover since Jupiter appears not white but tinted, and also marked with dusky spots and bands, it is an easy inference that the 70% is not all due to albedo. On the other hand, the spectroscope shows little but the ordinary Fraunhofer spectrum. There are other lines present, some due to a damp atmosphere and some unknown, one strong band in the red having been identified by Professor Vogel with a line seen in some red star spectra. Practically all the admissible spectroscopic evidence is in favour of a cool atmosphere and against an incandescent surface. In addition to this, the satellites of Jupiter, when crossing between us and the planet, have a way of casting dark shadows. They are, as a rule, brighter than the edges of Jupiter's apparent disk, but not so bright as the centre. Thus, on occasions, one or other of them appears quite black against the planet, so that here the evidence is conflicting. The first satellite only appears a little dusky, not dark. The second has a high albedo and never shows dark at all, the third and fourth appear to be of variable brightness. These last two have been proved by careful observations at Arequipa 
and at the Lowell Observatory, to have reached the advanced stage of development attained by the Moon, Mercury and Venus, and to keep always the same face to their primary, a conclusion asserted more than a century ago by Herschel, but long considered doubtful, and especially as the first and second satellites do not show this peculiarity. The first satellite revolves about Jupiter roughly four times a week, the second twice, the third nearly once, while the fourth takes rather more than a fortnight, so that a very simple relation approximately holds between the several periods. But after the lapse of centuries, this satisfactory harmony has been disturbed, first by Barnard's discovery in September 1892 with the 36-inch Lick telescope of a fifth satellite, nearer to the planet than the first satellite, and revolving about twice in 24 hours. Since Jupiter's rotation period is nearly 10 hours, this means that the fifth satellite is analogous to the outer satellite of Mars, and takes more than two Jovian days between rising and setting. It is quite small, probably not more than 100 miles in diameter, and only visible in very large telescopes under good conditions. The discovery bears eloquent testimony to the acuteness of Professor Barnard's vision, as the satellite is of the 13th magnitude, and never moves far from the glaring disk of Jupiter. Still more recently, in December 1904 and January 1905, Two additional Jovian satellites were discovered by C.D. Perrine at the Lick Observatory on photographs taken with the Crossley reflector. Like the fifth satellite, they are quite small and faint, but unlike it, they are far away from their primary and take nearly as many of our months to revolve as the fifth satellite does ours, roughly 600 Jovian days. It was for some time maintained that they were not satellites, but distant members of the asteroid group, whose mean motion would be sufficiently near that of Jupiter to compel them for some time apparently to accompany his system. But further observations negative this suggestion, and more attention has been devoted to the question of origin. It has been conjectured that Jupiter captured them from the outermost asteroids, so that they are new members of the system. On the other hand, it has been argued that distant satellites must be the oldest ones, but as this theory depends on the nebula hypothesis, it can scarcely command unquestioning support. It might be expected that, as the period of these new satellites is about 16 times that of the old fourth satellite, and that of the fifth satellite about one quarter of that of the first satellite, other members are still awaiting discovery to complete the gaps thus introduced in the simple relations of the system, one between the orbits of the fifth and the first, and three between those of the fourth and the two newest ones. There is only the slightest conjectural foundation for this, but the very smallness of these new members renders it possible that they are analogous to the asteroids, and that increased optical power may betray many more such satellites. Of greater interest, however, than insignificant specks like these, are the conspicuous and variable markings, spots and bands, on the apparent surface of Jupiter, of which the most famous is known as the Great Red Spot, to which attention was first drawn by Neeston of Brussels in 1878. In 1879 it had become much more conspicuous in colour, and in actual section was three or four times as large as the Earth, though its elongated shape would not have allowed the Earth to pass quite through its circumference. A neighbouring white equatorial spot rotated in nine hours fifty minutes, while the red spot took five and a half minutes longer. Obviously they could not both be fixed, and assiduous observation proved that neither was. The red spot faded away in 1883, but revived again, and in fact may be regarded as a feature neither temporary nor permanent in the ordinary sense, for on the one hand its persistence is far too great for a cloud as we understand it, 
and its disappearances may be only due to the interposition of a veil of some kind, while on the other hand its position, size, colour and motion are variable. In spite of persistent observation by Denning of Bristol, Stanley Williams of Brighton and others in this country, and by G.W. Hoff of Chicago and others elsewhere, we know very little of the nature of the spot and the causes of its variation. It is not known whether it is higher or lower than the surroundings. A dark spot on the same parallel overtook it in July 1890, but instead of settling the vexed question by passing over or under the red spot, it simply skirted it in a manner reminiscent of Stockton's celebrated little romance, The Lady or the Tiger. In recent years, the red spot as such has been very little seen, though there is evidence that its effect in interfering with neighbouring bands has not disappeared. Discussion of series of drawings and photographs has led Stanley Williams to differentiate between nine principal currents in different latitudes, but not necessarily quicker near the Jovian equator, so that the solar analogy does not hold completely. Spectroscopic determination of the rotation by Belopolsky and Deslandres showed that Jupiter exaggerates his size, since the linear velocity shown at his equator is less than that inferred from his apparent size and observed angular rotation. The peculiar markings round the equator, with the appearance of portholes, sometimes equipped with guns, have been found in their variations to conform fairly well to a sunspot period, but we are still far from being able to differentiate between cause and effect in regard to this tantalising periodicity, whose frequent emergence from analyses of totally different phenomena have earned for it the title of the universal pulse of the solar system, given it by Professor Hahn. If Jupiter's low density and variable cloud system are evidences of an early stage of development and a high internal temperature, still more is this the case with Saturn. In bulk not far inferior to Jupiter, yet lighter than water, and with density increasing inwards, the outer envelopes must consist of heated gases in active circulation. Markings on Saturn are inconspicuous as a rule, but bright spots appear from time to time, and from these, a rotation period of about ten and a quarter hours has been deduced for the equatorial portions. In 1903, Barnard, with the 14-inch Yerkes refractor, announced a bright spot in a higher latitude, and from numerous observations by many observers, a period emerged of about ten hours thirty-eight minutes. The state of affairs on Saturn's surface thus appears to be, like Jupiter, only more so, for the difference of these periods points to an equatorial current on Saturn far stronger than anything yet deduced for Jupiter. But the conspicuous feature of the system is the ring, whose inconsistent appearance startled Galileo until explained by improved optical power. Edgeways, hardly to be seen at all, it was nevertheless considered, until the middle of the 19th century, as a solid body, or rather as more than one, for the most conspicuous division in the ring system was noted more than two centuries ago by Cassini, but immediately after that time, first G.P. Bond, from their appearance, and then Benjamin Pierce on theoretical grounds, began to deny the solidity, which had been such a stumbling block to Laplace's theory, inasmuch as by its stability was hardly possible. In 1857, Clark Maxwell, for the Adams Prize at Cambridge University, proved that the rings were not even fluid, but that they must consist of an aggregation of fine particles revolving independently, with periods determined by their distances from the planet. Thus, an idea put forward as speculation in the 17th century, and afterwards in the 18th by Cassini and Thomas Wright, was mathematically demonstrated as the only possible solution. Confirmation along other lines has not been wanting. 
evanescent markings or divisions testify to the unequal rotation, and slight irregularities in the shape of the rings, and of the shadow of Saturn on them, confirm variety of orbital planes. The unvarying brightness of the outer rings under different angles of illumination is additional proof of the correctness of Clark Maxwell's deduction. It has been urged against this photometric evidence of Professor Seeliger's that it does not account for the dusky inner ring. Seeliger's reply is that the inner ring is composed of similar particles not so thickly strewn, and that the dusky appearance is due to continuously recurring shadows. The inner dusky ring is transparent. For Barnard, in 1889, saw Iapetus, one of Saturn's great satellites, in the shadow of the ring, showing that sunlight could pass through. An even more delicate confirmation is due to Professor Keeler, who in 1895 at the Allegheny Observatory proved by spectroscopic observations of rotation that the outer part of the ring travelled more slowly than the inner, the exact opposite of what would happen if the rings were solid. The innermost portion, in fact, revolves about twice as fast as Saturn itself. From comparisons of old drawings made by Huygens with more recent ones, Otto Struve in 1851 suspected that the rings were shrinking towards Saturn, or that, at any rate, the space between Saturn and the innermost ring was diminishing steadily. He therefore made very careful measures, which he was able to repeat in 1882, when Saturn had performed a complete revolution round the Sun and returned to similar conditions. It appeared then that Huygens' drawings had been too uncertain, the observed change being rather in the nature of a slight spreading out of the rings both ways, and even that very uncertain, though on Clark Maxwell's theory such a change was likely. Subsequent measures, even with the Lick telescope, showed no change. The various gaps in the continuity of the ring system, of which the Cassini division is the chief, indicate distances at which no particles revolve, and these have been connected by Kirkwood's law with the periods of Saturn's ordinary satellites, just as the gaps in the asteroid zone were referred to that of Jupiter. Kirkwood himself showed that the Cassini division represented a period nearly commensurable with those of four of Saturn's moons, then considered to be eight in number, in addition to the countless constituents of the rings, which are, strictly speaking, so many separate satellites. The eighth of these moons, counting outwards from the planet, is Iapetus, whose peculiarity is a great variability in brightness, the variation being the ratio of two to nine, and the satellite being nearly invisible east of the planet while conspicuous west of it. The inference first drawn by Herschel, and since photometrically confirmed by W. H. Pickering, is that Iapetus always keeps the same face towards Saturn, which we have seen in other instances to be a normal state of affairs with old satellites, and that its surface is half bright and half almost dark. As regards the number of recognised Saturnian moons, in 1899 W. H. Pickering announced that on plates taken at Arequipa in 1898, another satellite of very small magnitude was shown. For lack of confirmation this was long doubted, but unexpectedly great eccentricity in the orbit of the new satellite was partly accountable for this. In addition to the fact that the discoverer's energies were just then devoted to his great work on the moon. In 1904, search on Arequipa plates, pushed rather further from Saturn's limb, revealed the presence of another object, in all probability the same as that shown in 1898, and Saturn's ninth satellite was soon officially recognised and the name Phoebe assigned. Its distance from Saturn is so great, about eight millions of miles, that it takes a year and a half of our time, or more than a thousand Saturnian days, to revolve about its primary and its orbital eccentricity, nearly a quarter, is almost twice as great as the greatest previously known for a satellite. 
Another unique feature of the motion of Phoebe is that it revolves about Saturn in the opposite direction to that usual in the solar system. As was afterwards suggested in the case of Jupiter's new satellites, the question arose as to whether this satellite was captured by Saturn, but the discoverer maintained that its retrograde motion was originally common to the system, but that after the birth of Phoebe, solar tides pulled the planet over. It is unfortunate for this theory that Jupiter's distant satellites do not confirm it. F.J.M. Stratton was recently awarded the Smiths Prize at Cambridge University for a laborious mathematical analysis of the possibilities of planetary inversion, as exemplified in the motion of Phoebe. His conclusions, though necessarily starting from data in part conjectural, point to the possibility of Pickering's suggestion being well-founded, and of solar tides pulling Saturn over from an obliquity greater than a right angle, or retrograde motion, to one less than a right angle, direct motion, after the birth of Phoebe, which might preserve its original direction of revolution. In view of the fact that the satellites of Uranus and Neptune also revolve in the retrograde direction, he concludes further that the tidal effect of satellites themselves is to prevent the obliquity reaching a right angle either way, so that Saturn's obliquity, having once passed that critical value, has been steadily diminished by such an action due to the great satellites on the ring. While Uranus and Neptune, being less subject to solar tidal action, have been actually prevented from turning over in the manner claimed for Saturn by the relatively more important tides of their own satellites. We must, however, postpone further consideration of questions of evolution to the end of the chapter. The discoverer of Phoebe has since announced a tenth satellite, possibly forming with the small seventh satellite, Hyperion, part of a zone of asteroidal satellites, similar to that suggested by the two latest members of Jupiter's system. Saturn's spectrum appears similar to Jupiter's, showing the same red star line and doubtful traces of aqueous vapour. The ring certainly has no atmosphere. The advance of knowledge in regard to Uranus is very slow. It appears to conform to the fashion in major planets of rotating in about ten hours, but the few markings visible on its disk in terrestrial telescopes are of an uncertain character. Its satellites revolve in a plane almost at right angles to the ecliptic, as if turned halfway over. But it seems on the whole likely, though different determinations are discordant, that the planet itself rotates in a plane quite different from that of the satellites, which, moreover, revolve like Phoebe in a retrograde direction. It appears distinctly flattened at the poles, and Barnard, on the assumption that the observed bulge was equatorial, deduced an angle of 280 between the two planes in question. Its diameter is less than half that of Saturn, and Dr. C calculates the compression as spectroscopists have differed in their conclusions in regard to Uranus. Huggins obtained a simple Fraunhofer spectrum indicating reflected sunlight, but others have found quite different conditions. And although a fluted spectrum asserted by one observer was proved to be an illusory contrast effect by Professor Keeler, there still remains strong testimony as to the appearance of six broad bands instead of a Fraunhofer spectrum, one band being F of hydrogen, hence presumed to exist free in the Uranian atmosphere, and another the same stellar line in the red, shown by Jupiter and Saturn. The others are not so clearly identified, though Keeler attributed a broad band in the yellow to water vapour as shown in the Earth's atmosphere. Neptune, still further off, and of about the same size as Uranus, presents hardly any features. Maxwell Hall in Jamaica deduced a rotation period of eight hours from some temporary fluctuations of brightness at the end of 1883, and again a year later, but no one else seems to have confirmed the result. Neptune is, however, provided with a satellite, whose plane of motion shifts rapidly, owing, it is assumed, 
to the effect of the equatorial bulging of Neptune. Tisserand and Newcomb have arrived independently at a result giving a limit of 1 over 85 for the compression, from which it was inferred that the rotation of Neptune must be slower than that of the other major planets. The inferred direction of Neptune's equatorial plane was corroborated by Dr. C's announcement of very faint bands seen in the Washington equatorial. But Barnard could not see anything of the kind, with either the great telescopes of Lick or Yerkes. C has also calculated a compression of 1 over 45, and a period of rotation of nearly 13 hours from a discussion of more recent data. Systematic photographic measures of Neptune and its satellite have for some time been regularly taken at Greenwich, and these promise in a few years' time to resolve definitely some of the uncertainties of the system. In order to photograph the satellite, a length of exposure is required that would be far too long for Neptune, whose image would spread so that the photograph could not be measured. But by means of an occulting shutter, which cuts off the light of Neptune from the plate, the planet is given only a short exposure and the satellite a much longer one, and the resulting images can be measured with great accuracy. From the fact that some periodic comets go out as far as Jupiter's orbit, and others as far as Neptune's, while yet others go further still, it has been conjectured that these last indicate the existence of one or more planets beyond Neptune. Professor Forbes of Edinburgh has computed elements for one such possible planet with a period of about a thousand years, and suggested another with a period five times as great. Moreover, Professor Todd, from the residual errors of Uranus after the effect of Neptune was eliminated, computed by Adam's method a position for an exterior disturbing body. His result gave a direction closely agreeing with that of one of Forbes's conjectured planets, but with a period of 375 years instead of a thousand. So far, however, the most diligent photographic search has failed to reveal any such object, and in any case the analogy of the newest discoveries in distant satellites would suggest that the outermost members of a system are probably disproportionately small, and that even the very slight motion apparent in such distant objects would tend to diminish the probability of a speck on the limits of photographic visibility from registering its position on the plate, while at the same time there is no hope of being able to allow for that motion from any theoretical conjecture. An attempt has been made to infer the position and elements of such a body from residual perturbations of Halley's Comet, the approaching return of which lends encouragement to the investigation. End of chapter 25